Well, sun is shining. I heard it's going to be cold and wet and rainy all week. But today, the sun is shining. You guys love to sing. I mean, it's just a blessing to hear. You were off tune, just right there in the back, but that's okay. Um, I just love what the Lord is doing uh, in this body. Um, Just the young ones, little McKenna and, and Julia who sang... Um, we come by the blood. That's, we'll pray in a minute. That's how we get to have a relationship with the Holy God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, young ones, for that. I love to hear about the students that are heading off to um, Guatemala. I was, I was grateful to see that in this service, we, uh, Pastor Stewart interviewed some of the senior high students. The last service, they inter- interviewed some of the junior high students. They said, well, what is it that we could pray for? And one of them said, pray that we don't die. Some real high goals here. Just love the honesty, but kind of glad some of the senior high kids are going to be there alongside. But anyway, let's, let's pray first and foremost. Let's commit our time to the Lord. Um, you know, this will never happen again. Like this moment, this, this exact group on this day with this word, this will never happen again. And so we pray that, that God just continues to work um, in us and through us. Let's pray first and foremost. Father, we do come before you. Uh, Lord, as these young girls just sang about, we come to you by the blood of Jesus. And we thank you for the fact that we can be in relationship with you, a holy God, because you rescued us from our sins and have redeemed us, allowed us, Lord, to uh, gather today um, with your word before us. Your spirit is present God, I would ask that everything that is said and done would would be uh, for your glory. May the name of Jesus be heard loud and clear. May the message of the good news be evident for all. Father, I I pray for help. I plead as I am in constant need um, for you um, to give clarity of of mind and thought and speech. Uh, Father, may may I just disappear. And may we all together hear of you and learn of you. We thank you that you are a sovereign God of grace. Um, As we learn now from this this narrative, a miraculous story of how you work, um, that we would be encouraged, that we would come away getting a better, a clearer glimpse of who you are. That's that's our prayer. Uh, Lord, have your way with us. We love you. Thank you for loving us. Yes, this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Okay, the story of Jonah, we've talked about the fact that God, and I want to not just remind you of this, but also encourage you of this, that God in his sovereignty, okay, he is at work. God in his his sovereignty is at work, not only in the hearts and the minds of, of those that are in relationship to him. That's us, okay, and that's Jonah. But we also see that God in his sovereignty is at work in the hearts and the minds of people who who are in complete rebellion against him. Do you realize that? Just like the city of Nineveh, sometimes we get discouraged, like, come on, like, God, aren't you going to do anything here? Like, look what's happening in the world. God is at work, not only in the lives of those that are in relationship, but those that are in full-out rebellion against him. 
Those of you just joining us for the first time, we've been involved in this study throughout the, the book of Jonah. We talk repeatedly about the fact that he is sovereign. There's nothing that's taking him by surprise, okay? Not only is he sovereign, but he's also a God of grace, unmerited favor, a God of second chances of which I am so thankful for. We see that in, in Jonah as well. When, when you and I, like Jonah, just blow it, like completely disobey, completely disregard, God specializes in kind of scraping us up off the ground and, and, and putting us together and using us, us, in some way for his glory. We've seen that throughout this story story of a ship and, and, and a storm and this great fish, a story of a prayer that Jonah cried out from the belly of the fish, and, and, and what? And a message, an amazing message. It's a short message, but Jonah, Jonah went back to Nineveh, and he preached an amazing message, and we saw that God just lit the people up. And there was a spiritual awakening, a spiritual reviving, a revival. Oh, how we need to be reminded of that as far as a goal that we're praying for, not only in our own hearts and lives, but in the lives of every single community member that lives around us, that we're in, in, in what relationship with at some level. We talk about the fact that not only should we be praying that there is a message of hope out there and we give to people a message of forgiveness and the fact that we can have eternal life and relationship that happens on the outside, but we're also praying for certain things in here. That words like submission, surrender are commonplace for us. That the process of sanctification is real. That repentance takes place. That holiness exists and is a, is a desire for all of us inside. Talk about what revival is. What is, what is the DNA? What are the components? What, what make up revival? We looked at two things last week. We looked at, first of all, there must be a trusting in the word of God. It says in verse 5 that the people of Nineveh believed God. It begins there. They believed and they gave credit to the word that Jonah spoke to them. And they believed what? That they were going to one day be held accountable, just like all of us will be. All of us accountable to a holy God. They put their, their faith and they trusted in the word that they heard. So it's necessary for a revival to take place. We saw last week as well that there's also needs to be a mourning, a weeping and agonizing over our own sin. It says what? That they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Like, what is this about? Like, so we put on itchy clothes? No, no, no. it's a reminder that we are to be what? Uneasy in body. That's what that sackcloth is all about. And to be uneasy in, in mind. Every time that you want to go to the fridge for something and, and the king declared a fast, no one eats. Not, not even the animals are going to eat. Every hunger pang, what, puts us uneasy in mind to be sorrowing and mourning over our own sin in fear we live in fear we're going to be accountable we can face god's divine wrath apart from the good news and that's what we're talking about today let's let's pick it up let's read again this text just so it's fresh in our minds we pick it up in verse 4 jonah chapter Three, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. 
They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. One of the shortest messages ever recorded, ever preached in, in, in biblical literature, it, it's eight words. Pretty short message. You're not going to get one that short this morning. Sorry about that. It's simple message. It's clear. And in this message, it's pretty, pretty evident that, that the Lord is giving Nineveh 40 days, only 40 days. Now, I was thinking by way of just examining that word and studying and searching scriptures that the word 40, does that seem somewhat reminiscent? It seems to arrive oftentimes in scripture particularly it's oftentimes associated with with trials or testing and judgment. Uh, Noah built an ark and it rained what? 40 days and 40 nights. Remember that. Joshua spied out the land of Canaan, the promised land for 40 days. Israel was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Big, bad, ugly Goliath came out every single day and taunted the Israelites for 40 days. We know that Jesus himself was tempted and fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the Judean wilderness. And yet it says in what? In Hebrews chapter 4, he did all of that yet without sin. We get a little bit of a glimpse that when it comes to the ministry and the message of Jesus, the mission that he is on, he, he is separate from everything else. Well, what is this 40 days? You know what I think? I, I believe that, that when it, it comes to the subject of revival, it comes to the subject of spiritual awakening, of, of need, the, the need to, to, to wake up, that by way of a set time period, it simply reminds us that, that the clock is ticking. The idea that the time for decision is not like later on. The time to make a decision is now. When it comes to us either um, sharing the good news, we have to make sure it's presented with a sense of urgency or receiving the good news that we understand what it's not the time to delay. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't wait on this. Thankfully, we see that Nineveh got the message. They, they, they responded, they repented. It says that they're in sackcloth and ashes. The king issues a, a decree, an official a declaration that says what? It's not only a fast for us, but it's a fast for every single one of our animals. A, a time of mourning over sin. But that's not the only instruction he gave. He actually gave more instruction. 
And this is the third part, the third, third component that we need to remember to hold on to as far as what's necessary. It's part of the DNA of revival. Here's, here's number three, a crying out to God. Not only do we need a trusting in the word of God, not only we need to mourn over our sin, but we need to be crying out to God. Verse eight, the king says, I want everyone to call out mightily to God. Um, that, that same phrase is, is translated somewhat differently in a couple different translations. The NIV says this, call out urgently. Like, like, don't wait on this. New Living says, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. The King James Version says, cry mightily. Like, what, like what, what is all of this saying? I think you can pretty much understand it. There, there is, this is speaking about a literal, audible, calling out, a crying out or a praying out loud. This is instructed by what the king. Notice the lowercase, the little K, the king of Nineveh. So the, the lowercase K, king of Nineveh, calls for everyone to cry out. But you know, there's also, I believe, clear indication throughout scripture that the uppercase K, king, God himself, calls for us to cry out in recognition of our own sins. God speaks through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 58. He says this, cry aloud and do not hold back. Great. So we get a, finally we get a sunny day and we're talking about crying. Like crying is just, just nobody wants to talk about crying. No, no. God's word says that we are to cry aloud. Don't hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression. We know that this, 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 Little shepherd boy who we know killed a lion, he killed a bear, and he kills Goliath. Talks about crying all the time. A lot of times we're talking about, yeah, real men don't cry. That's just, that's just a bunch of steaming hot pile, you know. D- David talks all the time. Psalm 27, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Psalm 88, but O Lord, I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. Psalm 119, let me cry. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Like, what is this idea about crying? Let me tell you this. I, I believe that there is something unique. There's something distinct and different beyond beyond thinking about it and actually saying it. I woke up one uh, night this week with these two words, verbalizing and vocalizing. We need to be experts at verbalizing our sin and, 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 and vocalizing it, saying it out loud, audibly. For some reason, it makes it, it, makes it more real to us. You know what I have found is that we have a tendency to think we almost pretend like it's not, it's really not that bad. I'm not really that bad until, until we actually admit it. Until we actually say it. Until those words, what, they come over our tongue, they come through our lips, out of our mouth, and into the ears not only of our holy God who hears everything and don't think for a moment that God has to what? Hear it, hear us audibly speak it before he knows it. He knows everything. He knows every thought right now. 
without you ever verbalizing it, but there's something about actually saying it. Not only to the Lord, but I believe it's important. What I was talking with a teaching, a group of students this week in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What I find is interesting is that Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he's even a little bit more specific with this. He says this, if you confess with your mouth, like you, you got to use your mouth on this one. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's got to be something to literally and audibly speaking out loud. Why? Why? Like, why, does, like why is this important? Let me tell you this, because you and I are engaged every single day in battle. Spiritual warfare exists. It is very real. There is an enemy who has a desire, what, first and foremost, to just discourage you, whisper lies. And he does that masterfully, doesn't he? There's an enemy that, that wants to devastate us and literally destroy us. Let me tell you this. The enemy is brilliant. He knows more theology than anyone else in this room. And he knows theology better than anyone else in this entire room. Understand that. The enemy is powerful and the enemy is brilliant. Let me tell you this. Satan is not omniscient. He's not, he's not like God. Okay, which means why well, he can't read your mind. He has no idea. But I believe he has great hearing and he listens. Let me tell you this. If I know that the enemy has great hearing and hearing, then, then I want to make sure that he hears about the fact that there has been a once and for all time sufficient satisfying atonement for my sin and for the sins of everyone else. That when Jesus Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished. That I want to remind, I want to remind Satan verbally, audibly, every day, you are done. You're cooked. Jesus declared victory over you on the cross. There's something about the fact that just as this little girl sang, we come by the blood. There's something unique and powerful about claiming the fact that we are covered by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we audibly talk of this. We say out loud. It, it, has, it has long been since I was a little boy in our home until I grew up and we had little kids in our home. We often pray audibly out loud. The kids would just fall asleep at night and I would go in and I would pray out loud over them, sometimes waking them up. That's all right. They'll fall back to sleep. That this home is covered by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That victory has been declared and Satan has no place. He has no position and he has no power. Not, not when it comes to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's got to be something audibly saying out loud. Peter calls it what? The precious blood of Christ. I love that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus what? He, he paid the full debt of sin that we owe to God that we could not pay. We need no further sacrifices. 
The very last words that Jesus uttered, it is finished, was announcing what verbally out loud for everyone to hear. He was announcing that redemption has been completed forever, having obtained, as it says in Hebrews chapter 9, eternal redemption once and for all. People, we cannot, we cannot, we cannot forget the precious blood of Jesus. We sing it, we shout it, and we let everyone know who we are, what we stand in, that we live and move in Jesus' strength and not our own. And we all know that as Nineveh cried out loud, they recognized their sin. We also know that there's got to be more to it than just, just saying it. Right? James chapter 2, verse 17 says this, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. So there's this idea that, yes, we recognize and yet we cry out our own sinfulness, but there's something more to it than just what? Just acknowledging our sin. So in order for there to be revival, there needs to be a calling out of our sin. But there also, fourthly and finally, needs to be a turning from evil ways. Look how it's worded in in verse 10. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. Think literally 180 degrees, okay? Turning is the same idea of the word repent. They're going one way in destruction. They recognize that and they turn away from it. What's interesting is that you and I are regularly confronted with the need to constantly repent. I was reminded of this years, years ago when the kids were little and, and Seth particularly was probably, I don't know, four, four, five years old and we were sitting at the dinner table. And, and it was lesson time about the importance of eating your vegetables. And he had, remember, he had carrots, he had mashed potatoes and ham. And, and he, was, he was kind of focusing, working the ham and the mashed potatoes, but he wasn't eating the carrots. And so I said, son, you got, you got to make sure you eat your carrots. You better eat your vegetables. I mean, it wasn't Brussels sprouts. It's carrots. It's not that bad. He kind of continued on, just working on the, the, the potatoes and the ham. And the second time, I said, son, boy, you better, you better eat your vegetables. You better eat those carrots. Completely disregarded. The third time, I said, son, boy, you better right now eat those carrots. He looked back at me. He had mashed potatoes smeared all over his face. And he says this, dad, he goes, don't bug me right now. <laughs> oh. Let's just say the, uh, we put the vegetable eating on hold just for a few minutes. Now, now, did we have to sit down with him and say, all right, son, now when we instruct you, when we teach you, what I want you to do is I want you to backtalk me like that. Do we have to teach that? No, for some reason, without any instruction whatsoever, he figured it out all on his own. We never taught him that. Same, same idea. Nobody teaches you to have a temper tantrum when you don't get what you want. No, no one teaches you how to pick a fight with your little brother, little sister. For, for some reason, there is what? And, and, and the people of Nineveh, they, they are clearly in violation 
living in full rebellion, and yet they understand the importance of what? Having to turn from that and live a complete different way. They were idolaters. They're worshiping little, like, little, little graven images, little carved wooden and stone and metal gods. Put them away, and they said, there's one, there's one true God we're going to worship. Talks about the fact that they, they were what? They were living with violence. This was a, this was a bloody, brutal society. They would hurt people just for fun. They would crush and malign and attack, and yet they recognized and they turned from their wickedness, their sinfulness, and they were saved. Now what? Now, now the ongoing, the never-ending debate when it comes to soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, particularly in this particular context, we, we, we ask the, the challenge, the tension here is this. Does mankind, did the people of Nineveh repent from their sin in, in their own strength, on their own will, and then God saved them? Or what? Or does God save them first, thus give them the ability to repent from their sin? Many people argue endlessly and have debated the order. Like, what, what comes first here? But no one can debate the fact that what... For salvation, both are necessary. Both of them are necessary. So, so the order, we, 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 we may not know precisely, exactly. The, the, the debate is this, man's responsibility or God's sovereignty. I heard it best described, I believe, from John MacArthur. He says this, when it comes to man's responsibility... And, and God's sovereignty, he says that they are two parallel roads that will never intersect, and we have to be okay with that. You know, that's really what it boils down to. That, that we know that there can be no salvation apart from repentance. We also know when it comes to the idea of how, well, how do we repent in and of ourselves. So what is my responsibility and what is God's work? Can I, can I confess something to you? I have studied, did the math. I took my first pneumatology anthropology class when I was 19 years old. So it's over 30 years. I have studied the Bible and, and theology and I have to confess and I have to admit this, I hope you're not disappointed, but I, I still don't fully understand how salvation works. God, God's ways are higher than my ways. I don't fully understand that. I'll tell you what, I, I do know. I, I, I do know this, before the foundations of the world were set, God knew all about me. And God, God knew all about you. And God knew exactly who was going to accept him. And God knew who was going to reject him. I, I do know that for certain. Studied the Bible for 30 years and I don't fully understand salvation, but I, I tell you what I do know for sure. I know that God formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb, just like he did you. Every single one of you. I don't, I don't fully understand how salvation works, but I do know for certain that since I gulped my first breath of air, 
on August the 26th, 1968, I know that every single breath of air that I have taken since then has been a simple gift of God's grace to me that I just do not, do not deserve. I, I don't fully understand how, how man's responsibility is, is alongside of God's sovereignty. I don't fully understand that, but I, I do know that apart from God, I can't stand, I can't walk. Apart from God, I can't talk. Apart from God, I can't read, I can't write, I can't think, I can't breathe. And I certainly, certainly cannot repent of my sins on my own. I don't fully understand how, how like the intricate parts of salvation work, but I, I do know this. I do know that apart from, from God, I can do nothing. I don't understand how, how it all works, but I, I do know this, that I can cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's, that's, that's what I do know. And, and, I, and I know that I can trust God, that God will change me to be the guy who really doesn't want to eat his vegetables into someone that wants to stand up and tell people about the amazing gift of God's grace and speak of his sovereignty and the good news that is offered through the cross and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone said it well. He said, prayer, prayer, crying out without reformation or, or crying out without Repentance is a mockery of God. Prayer, on the other hand, must precede true reformation as we cannot turn to God from our evil way unless God first turns us. So what, what is necessary for salvation is this, faith in a holy and sovereign God of grace. We, we go all the way back to last week and we talk about the fact what? The people of Nineveh believed God. That's where it starts. Now we're talking about what we need to believe first and foremost, but we also teach and tell other people what they must believe first and foremost. But what, what, what is it that, like, but what do we believe in? Like, what about God do we believe? We, we believe that God created Mankind in his own image to be in relationship with him. And yet we know that mankind disobeyed God, rebelled and suffered the curse of what? Sin and, and death and separation from God. We know that. What, what, what is it that we have to believe that God promised us? God promised that he would rescue us from our sin. We believe that. And what do we also believe? That God kept his promise by what? Coming to earth himself in the flesh of a man. And that man's name was Jesus. What, what, what do we trust in? We believe that, that God lived when he was here on earth a sinless life. That God suffered and he, he bled and that he died on the cross. We, we believe that and we trust that. We believe that God paid the price for all of our sins. He bore the full weight of, of wrath that we deserve. We know that, that God rose from the dead and God what? Also promises eternal life. And now God what? God calls us to trust his word and follow him in obedience. And we also trust that God keeps his 
promises. God keeps his promises. What do we do with this? What do we, what do, we do like with this? With this knowledge of what revival is, what, what we are praying for. Jesus in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, I think he summarized it best. This is our message. The time is fulfilled. means the clock is ticking, okay? It's imminent. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Best summary statement. So, so we have a responsibility. I was listening. I told you last week, a couple of the guys, the pastors and I were at a conference and, 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 and Kevin DeYoung was preaching. And he says this. He said, he was speaking to pastors. He said, let it never be said of any pastor. So let's just broaden it. Let it never be said of any one of us that no one warned me of the wrath to come. You understand, we can only offer good news if you know the fact that bad news is real, that bad news exists. That's what, that's what we're praying for. Here and out there. I'm totally convinced, I'm totally convinced that people are just blinded with the fact like this is like just this is just too hard. We can't do this. Like really? Bad news, good news. Isn't that rough? Blood, cross, suffering. It's not, it's not that difficult. I have to be honest, I um, jigged the office a little early on Friday afternoon. It was Friday afternoon and the sun was shining and I just, I wanted to finish my work. I wanted to get out. And, and, and I, I asked, my, my little grandson was close by and I said, hey, can I go out? We're going to take him out. We'll go for a ride in the Jeep. And we ended up, we ended up at a playground downtown. I like massive, massive like um, playground, like the little cushy stuff like on the bottom. Uh, we didn't have that when we were kids. And what was amazing, I thought we'd just enjoy the sunshine and we'll play outside and push him on a swing. And you know what's interesting is like as soon as you're pushing, like look on the swing, he's having a great time, you realize that next to you, there's somebody else pushing somebody else on the swing. That, that you end up like just like, hey man, how old is he? And you start talking. Everybody wants to talk about themselves. Everybody wants to talk about themselves. Everyone wants to show pictures of their kids and their grandkids. And they want to, what? They want to tell you about their life. And you got to hear about my, my, you got to hear about my, my kids. You hear about my grandparents and everyone. And in that, in that course of an hour, hour and a half, I met dozens of people. Like it's not that hard. And tell them. It's like, like a two minute drive from here. And in the conversations that I had, while I'm chasing this little Energizer bunny all over the place, even, even in that, it's very evident a lot of people don't know, haven't heard anything about the gospel of Jesus. Thus, thus the importance of what, not just praying for revival, praying that revival starts here, but that we pray that what? That God is at work his, his sovereignty in his grace, he's at work, not only in the lives and minds of those that are in relationship with him, you and us, but God is at work right now. In the hearts and minds of people who are in complete rebellion against him. That's, that's the connection. 
They, they wake up and they breathe air that God has gifted to them. They see the beauty of creation around them that God has gifted to them. And automatically we begin to tell them about the good news of Jesus. But we understand that every single one of us are covered. Those who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're covered and protected by his shed blood. And we have a message of such glorious hope that we need to be passing on to others. May we do that. May we be praying for that as a local church on fire for the gospel, for the glory of God. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder. We just pray, Lord, that we would be faithful and obedient, submissive to you. We love you. We thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. Can you stand with us, please, as we close?